Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. This episode deals with underdogs. Jill talks about wine from Chile in South America, and Emily talks about a little-known composer from Sweden named Franz Beerwald from the 1800s. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a playlist and wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Good day, Emily Reese. Hello, Jill Mott. Greetings. Greetings, and welcome to another episode of Scores and Pours. Mm -hmm. Today, I'm super excited to talk about a topic that I don't know if I've never heard anybody talk about the topic of underdogs in classical music. Oh, have you? I don't know. Have any you and any of your homies classical like talked about? Underdogs, whether they're composers, whether they're conductors, whether it's a form or function. Sure. With wine, I think people could say, oh, I wish this region got more, you know, accolades or press or, or, you know, whatever. People paid more attention to this grape um, because I really like this grape or something. But underdogs and then especially marrying underdogs in classical music and wine. Come on. We're a little weird. Uh, I chose a really fun wine and one of my favorite from this nation uh, that we'll talk about. My underdog in wine is Chile. Yes. And I I'll, want to live in Chile. You've mentioned this before. And I'd, so yeah. and you you would be hard-pressed to find uh, a lot of people would say there's world-class wine there, but most wine professionals would say it's not on the radar for world-class wine. However, interesting people that are in the natural wine camp will say absolutely there is world-class natural wine there. People are doing great things for pure, juicy, well-made wines in Chile. Nice. And that's my underdog is that they get more, they either more people go there to grow great grapes and and make great wine like Mm -hmm. that or that, you know, my version of an underdog is like, you know, they're, they're, they're really doing good work, but a lot of people are either squashing them down, right? Yeah. Uh, or they just aren't able to ever, like, leap over that precipice of success, you know, yeah. in terms of, and they've had it financially, but we'll, we'll get into that more when we talk about uh, the history of mm-hmm. the Chilean wine business, because it's a pretty fascinating one. What do you think the spider situation is like down there? I think that there are probably a lot of spiders when we're talking about like in Santiago, Chile. Maybe not because there's a whole lot of uh, pollution and people. But you know, if you're in the heart of the Itata Valley that we'll talk about, or the Maipo Valley that we'll talk about, okay. or the Bio Bio Valley, you know, probably a, a boat ton of spiders. Er, hmm. all right. What about? But uh, not in the music of Franz Berwald. Yes, tell me about uh, <laughs> Franz Berwald and why that was your. Because I was very excited to hear that was your underdog. He, I love this man. I love talking about Franz Berwald. I love listening to his music. And uh, he needs more recognition. Not the best composer in the world. He's not a Bach or a Beethoven or a Schubert or a Berlioz or 
Rachmaninoff. He's none of those. And why would you say that? What makes you... Well, part of it was, I think, you know, lack of solid training in, you know, consistently through his life because he did a lot of other jobs um, while trying. He, he never made a living as a composer. Okay. I don't think that was really his choice. I think he would have wanted to uh, make a living as a composer, but just did other things so that he could survive. Yeah, wasn't he, uh, like his family, after his father passed, he was... Mm-hmm. In charge of you know making making the financial means for the family. Yeah, so he, I mean he had sisters and yeah, there yeah and brothers too. I think he had at least two brothers and there were a couple of sisters living at home and yeah he had to be in charge of all of that. And so what about him? Why do you think he deserves more recognition? Well, I mean, you can listen to some of his music and. He didn't write a ton. He did write a ton. When you, th- when you think about someone who didn't compose for a living, I think he wrote a lot of music. But when again, when you compare it to his contemporaries, uh, it's, it's not a huge stack. But he did write four symphonies. He wrote a handful of tone poems. We've talked about tone poems on this program. And he was writing tone poems before Liszt was writing tone poems. Mm. So, I mean, he, he was savvy. He traveled a lot. So he was exposed to things in that regard. But okay. he just, why do I think he's not as recognized? Why do you think he's deserving of more recognition? Deserving of more recognition. I think all four of his symphonies are great. People talk about the last the third and fourth being more mature than one and two. Like, whatever. I think that all four are great. His third is definitely what people talk about him. You know, that's his... His masterpiece is his third symphony, which is what we're going to hear from today, and because it's great. Um, And you know, in radio, we talk about driveway moments where you know you always want to make a driveway moment where you're you're home, but you don't want to turn off the car because you want to keep listening. Yep. And I had a driveway moment the first time I heard Berwald's third symphony because I was just like, "How have I never heard this?" in my life, how have I never, you know, and part of it is just not paying attention because I'm sure I heard Berwald in my life, but I don't know. It just, to me, is a beautiful piece of music that, um, and it's not the only beautiful piece that he wrote, but it's uh, it's a goodie and should be heard by more people. Nice. The other cool thing I will tack onto this, though, sorry, I just like aggressively pointed a pen at Jill Mott. I didn't mean to. Do that. <laughs> I was like, yes. And then I pointed at her back, like, what? Tell me, make that point. Please. Uh, the, uh, the, the, one of the things, too, is that in terms of countries in the great white north of, you know, Norway, Finland, um, Sweden, and there's another one tossed in there sometimes, right? Iceland. Iceland. Okay, maybe not Iceland. But we're, t- <laughs> we're talking about, unless we're going to bring Björk into the picture, but we're not. When we're talking about classical music, you know, Norway has its nice lengthy list, of course, with Edvard Grieg uh, at the forefront of composers. Finland has a nice list, of course, led by Sibelius, John Sibelius, but others as well. And Sweden never really had that. And so the fact that Berwald still really hasn't even been embraced by Sweden kind of annoys me about Sweden. I love you, Sweden. Most of us here in Minnesota are from you, so we love you. (laughs) But but listen. That was great. Embrace your Berwald. All right, I'll stop for now. Embrace you some Berwald. Well, and and it's, um, it's similar, like I mentioned before, with Chile, that the wine world will say, you know, they, they make, they make great quality wine or they make great value wines or, mm-hmm. you know, but um, they tend to be, so Chile has has gone through some pretty pretty tough times. In the 14 and 15, well, 1500s really, uh, the grape called Pais, which we'll talk about when we actually taste the wine, but Pais was brought over by the Hernan Cortes like regiment to be planted for basically sacramental purposes, right? To plant it in Mexico, Argentina, up the coast through California, et cetera, and of course down in South America in Chile. And um, in, in in the 1500s, the 1600s, you know, there were a lot of vineyards actually. They were quite prolific around um, in and around the area that we would now call Santiago. And 
in the 1800s when a lot of Europe experienced phylloxera, which is this little little louse that will come and basically inject its saliva into roots and kill a vine. And it's you don't see the vine dying for months to years later. Mm. All of a sudden, Europe was at a loss for wine. Vines wow. were dying left and right. France, you know, lost almost all of their vines. Spain lost all of their vines. And so where did everybody go for wine? They went to Chile. You know, the lack of wine there was in Europe in the 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a plethora of not only wine being produced, but also like kind of juicy, darker wine. A lot of French stocks were brought over and grafted onto the, the root stock. So you need to, if you want to, you can bring over uh, like Cabernet came over, Merlot came over, all these really popular to French Chile. grapes. To Chile. Yep. And, and throughout the 1900s, and so people could get their Cabernet, they could get their Merlot. And, you know, Chile was known for producing some pretty good wine, and they had a, there was a boom that happened there in the early 1900s. What happened was um, then Pinochet came in in the 70s and unearthed so many vines in lieu of planting, you know, eucalyptus trees, various trees that were, you know, more propitious to, to growing to, for paper. Mm -hmm. And we lost a ton of old vines, a ton of useful vines, a lot mm -hmm. of old clone pais that, you know, you'll never have that again. Mm. Um, and then when, when the economic boom came later, decades later, we'll say, you know, the 1990s, the early 2000s, there was a lot of French immigrants, Spanish immigrants that came over and, you know, they invested in, it was like a kind of a little wild westy, but it was like France, everybody knew about French wine and French vineyards were very expensive. Spanish land was very expensive and Chile was cheap. So, yeah. and they, you know, you have irrigation coming from the Andes. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of pre-phylloxera vines, the ones that weren't ripped up because yeah. you, phylloxera, it's not to say it doesn't exist in Chile, but can phylloxera travel over mountains? They can't. Andes to the east. Can they mm -hmm. travel in water? They can't. So you have a lot of um, pre-phylloxera vines in Chile. Wow. Um, there's just a lot of disease that isn't there. You know, they're known for their dry, warm summers. So, you know, they're not worried about a lot of rot. So you've got a perfect climate for, I feel yeah. like I'm rambling, but a perfect climate for grapes and yeah. grape growing. What happens is when you try to make $7.99 juice okay. or... You're trying to make $70 compete with, say, California over oaked juice. Yeah. You're probably not going to win the hearts of, a, in my opinion, of a lot of like soul searching sommeliers. You know what I mean? You're yeah. kind of going on the margin or the elite yeah. side of things. And I think per, this, and this is per, very personal opinion. That's where Chile lost it for me. I, I've worked very oh. intimately with Chilean wines in the early 2000s. And you saw this like just no man's land of A, natural wine, but B, no man's land of like, yes, there were 20 to $30 juice, but it was no more inspiring than sure. something coming out of Spain or wherever. Yeah. So that's where I think I've always kind of been cheering for Chile to come yeah. out of the woodwork and do something like yeah. show your climate, you know, showcase what you can do without adding a bunch of stabilizers and pardon me, but shit to your wine, you know? Yeah. And um, there are only a handful maybe a dozen plus that are doing that now, but man, mm -hmm. are they inspiring and super cool. And that's why Chile today is my underdog. Nice. Should we? Can I taste it? Yes, you definitely <laughs> can taste it. Um, so I think you should get a little, just get a little zing on your tongue. And then before we talk about wine, let's listen to Bearbone. Let's go there. <clears throat> but, okay. But tell me what you think. I won't tell you anything about this wine. Okay. Just tell me what you think of it from tasting and smelling. I love that it's cloudy and unfiltered. Yes. <laughs> to scores and pours. To scores and pours. Wow. Zing -ling -ling -ling. Wow. <laughs> Electric <laughs> alive. Mm, I want more now. Put it in your water glass that is 20 ounces and drink it. Yes. Preferably out of the fridge, perhaps. Yeah. We'll get there. I'm glad that that was your uh, response. Mm, Bear vault me. Bear vault me. Bear vault. <clears throat> um, 
Berwald, 1846 is when he wrote this piece. Um, so that makes him what? He was 50? Was he born uh, in 96, right? 1796, okay. Mm -hmm. um, so amongst his orthopedic surgeon-like ways and his yeah. managerial skills in various like factories mm -hmm. and stuff, factories. he was, you know, just, you know, just writing this on the side. Just writing this on the side. Come yeah. on, man. Yeah, that that is one of the um you know, one of the more famous composers who also had a different day job would be uh, the Russian composer Alexander Borodin who was a chemist and there's this chemical reaction I think called the Borodin effect. So he was a legit scientist. Berwald also was a legit uh orthopedic not surgeon, but um Oh, I thought he was a surgeon. My I bad. don't think he was a surgeon. I think he made prosthetics oh, okay. Okay. and helped with rehab and therapy and rehab and therapy in like po the right ways you know this wasn't quack science yeah. he was doing legit helpful things and helped many people and some of the devices that he invented were around for decades after so Berwald was legit in that way he had this weird passion for orthopedics I guess you could say cool. but then he did go on and do the uh glass blowing thing for a while managed uh, one of those factories he made bricks for a very short amount of time. Pfft. Strange fella. Wasn't really well-liked. He was kind of, I think, a crabby man, but once people got to know him, they valued him, you know? But I think he was just kind of a tough nut to crack. But anyway, let's listen to some. One of the interesting things about this symphony is, is that the the primary material, and we haven't talked yet about what a symphony is. We will in this show, but uh, there's two big chunks of primary material in the first movement, traditionally speaking. This is all part of that first chunk, okay. all of this. And it's not particularly the most melodic material, but it, I mean, neither is Beethoven's fifth. All right, and he's doing something really similar there, where he's taking this re kind of repetitious rhythm and repeating it and altering it and tossing it around the orchestra and stuff. But we couldn't necessarily say it's a theme in variations. No, right? definitely not. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is what I like this. Isn't this part great? Yes, and I feel like this repeats itself. Oh, it does. Freckled yeah. around. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, this... You know, just you know, just an amateur, quote-unquote, composer, you know. Well, I know, and this, what's happening right now, harmonically speaking, is kind of a little ahead of its time, harmonically speaking, the way he's doing this kind of pedal thing, and, and it gets complicated. When you say pedal thing, what do you mean? Well, it gets this kind of complicated theory speak in okay. terms of for what we should talk about here, but it basically just means there's this one note that's maintaining while the harmony, harmony is changing underneath it, and in just more modern ways than what you would expect to hear in 1846. The other thing I really love about this symphony is how it's scored because it's a very traditional scoring for a symphony. It's not this huge, giant, romantic-sized orchestra with four trumpets and eight French horns and seven clarinets. It's like, <laughs> it's like violin, viola, cello, bass, as you would expect. And then, and then there's 
you know, handful of flutes or something, right? A couple clarinets, a couple flutes, a couple trumpets, a couple horns. You know, it's just there's trombones, which is great. Nice. Uh, and yeah, and and one of my favorite things about this piece too is there's some really great little bassoon writing that happens in in and about, and it's fun for those of you who can follow along with the music. Maybe just follow along with the bassoon part sometime and just because there's just so many adorable little bassoon lines. And Berwald famously wrote a concerto for bassoon, which, yeah. So yeah. So why do you think he decided to write it in C major? Or why is C major like the main, you oh. know? Because it seems like sometimes when I see that, I'm like, really? Because that seems like sim- simple, you know, like a lot of people, I don't know. It, but then it's not. It finishes well, and I think, well, go go ahead, go ahead. Well, C, C major, I mean, you could think of it as simple, but traditionally speaking, especially in the Baroque era and into the classical era, although... Uh, Berwald was writing in the Romantic era, um, but keys had meanings, and for various reasons, uh, mostly for how tuning used to be back in the day. Um, and C major was just traditionally kind of like a happy, noble key, mm-hmm. not quite as noble as E flat. That was the noblest of all, mm-hmm. but um, C uh, just a very happy. Key. I feel like I'm happy right now, and I'm sitting up quite erect. Yeah. Or you know, maybe this is very like in, in a noble sense, perhaps. Yeah. Okay. But also, you know, when you think about a melody, and you think about a key, that melody will sound different in different keys. Yep. Because it's either going to go higher than you want it to go, or lower than you want it to go, or it's going to be just right depending on where you set the key. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're hearing a melody as a composer in your head one way. You're gonna, you know, want to have the execution of it written as such, you know. So, so it's possible that he's a violinist. So it's possible he was maybe working some of this out on his violin, or maybe working it out on the piano, whichever it was. But, you know, that could have been the reason he chose C major as well. Yeah. Is that that's just where the melody he heard laid out the best. Interesting. Does that make sense? It yeah. Makes perfect sense. Okay. Yes. Were I to guess, though, I would say it was the first. And that he wanted it to be joyful and happy and therefore C major. Okay. That's my guess. Love yeah. it. Go Berwald. Go Berwald. Anyway, Berwald three. I loved, I loved how different the three movements were because I listened yeah. to the three and what we've got, the Allegro, we've got the Adagio, and then the Finale Presto, like yeah. very like, like a faster rhythm. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, we'll, I, I hope we'll listen to all three today yeah. in some, in some yeah. you know, but I... Really enjoyed how different they sounded, um, and I can't wait to dive into how similar. You know what? What's the tie that binds? Oh yeah, I mean, there. Should I stop? <laughs> never, never. But do you want to be? Do you want to be laced by a little wine yeah. before we? Yeah, let's, before we let's go into number two. Don't let me forget to talk about why three movements. I will definitely not forget to tell you about okay. why three movements. Okay. Quote. Um, so the producer that I chose here, we're drinking a pipeño, which a pipeño is almost like the Chilean version of a Beaujolais Nouveau. Um, so I would say that when you go to any wine shop liquor store, and if you blindly grab a wine off the shelf, that wine is going to likely be dark in color. It's likely going to be fermented in stainless steel, likely with packeted yeast added and could be aged in some oak or not just depending on how much money you're going to spend if you're going to spend over thirty dollars you probably get you know some some new oak for your efforts and your dime and what we're drinking is the antithesis of that so and they've pretty much since the you know i'm going to forge a guess to say the mid 1900s they've been on a kick well actually maybe up up until the 80s to like get rid of all the rauli. Rauli is the old um, Chilean beechwood that a lot of people, it was around, so people were making barrels out of this rauli, R-A-U-L-I with an accent. And wines were usually, um, grapes were brought in a lot of times from, you know, a lot of different multitudinous types of grapes, but especially pais, this native grape. Um, They'd be crushed in a lagar of some sort, so like a you know, a concrete, uh, 
basically like a very shallow pool. It could have been made out of clay. It could have been even made out of wood. They would do some foot stomping. Um, you know, they would maybe macerate the must with the skins already crushed. Sometimes they'd just toss them all in. They'd ferment in this rauli. Sometimes they'd ferment in old leather sacks. Whoa. Which is still like from, you know, animals that have been tanned. And that's still being done today with people that are trying to see this, if this natural approach and old school method can still yield good results. I've tasted a couple and they can be really good. Wow. Got to be really careful with stuff like that yeah. in terms of just, san- you know, sanitary. You don't want a, a wine that wouldn't kill someone, but just would taste awful. Yeah. Um, and so this producer here is doing a, a various combinations of these young wines called pipenos. Um, his name is uh, Louis Antoine Lut, and he is a Frenchman who made his way over to Chile to learn Spanish. He made his way over to you know work in a restaurant, kind of get out of get out of France. He ended up, I think, working as a dishwasher for a while, and then he decided that being you know working with wine was more interesting. So he became the sommelier of a restaurant, and all the while when he would go throughout the back country of Chile, he'd be like what are you guys doing? You have like 200-year-old vine pice and nobody's doing anything with it other than letting it die on the vine or letting wow. it, or I should say rot on the vine or making just crap juice out of it. Yeah. And so he really was the one who, when you read anybody who's anybody talking about natural Chilean wine, they likely had a Luis Antoine Lut wine back in the early part of this decade, 2011, 2013. And they were like, oh my God, this is happening in Chile, thankfully, thank God. <laughs> and so I was going to bring another producer today, but I thought this was very apt because, because of what he's doing. He's bottling single vineyard pipeños uh, that are from various regions throughout uh, Chile. This is from the Itata, very far south, very cool climate. These are 150 to 250-some-year-old vines, which is just like crazy. And the the... Name of the wine is Colemu, one of, you know, uh, half, three quarters of a dozen that he makes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Pipeño, easy drinking, juicy, fruity. And it's from so two years good. It's from two years ago. So this 2015, you know, right now we're on, people are drinking 2019 Pipeños, 2018 wow. Pipeños, you know? Wow. So it's cool that these are still drinking well for people four years later. Yeah. Served in a liter, usually hovers right around 20 bucks. What pipeño should be? Cheers to Chile. Chile, I'm moving into you. <laughs> <laughs> what first happened is that my tongue went like right away, which was amazing. Yeah, was there's there's like a t- licking a nine volt. Yeah, that's very like there's there's a little volatility, but there's a lot of super high toned fruit that. I think if you're going to sit and get out your fault meter, people would be like, well, this might have a little too much volatile acidity for me or the fruit the fruit isn't, you know, just so plump and plush. It's like linear. You know, you yes, you and I can sit and beat this wine to death if we want, but this wine is meant to be you're sitting out with your friends and you're drinking it maybe half chilled out of a tumbler and just enjoying it, you know. And yeah. pipenos, uh, I, I brought a couple pipenos back on my or a trip I, I went to to Argentina. I had... I saw pipeños and knew about them and bought them. Mm-hmm. And I opened them up at home and I almost went and offered them up to Delta Airlines as jet fuel. I was like, do you guys want to try <laughs> to put this in a plane and see if it works? Because they were like so undrinkable. So it's like pipeño is just like Beaujolais Nouveau, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of crap out there. Mm-hmm. But if you really kind of siphon through the producers, you can find some people doing magical work. They're just... There's not a lot of them because people would opt for, you know, selling lots of $8 wine or, you know, medium the look amounts. on your of, face right now is so pained. Because oh, <laughs> Chile. I, t- I was talking to a dear friend about Chilean wines, and she was like, why are you going to do Chile? Nothing good comes out of Chile. I was like, are you kidding? That's, <laughs> that's so not true. There's so many great things. We just have to, A, find them, but B, the whole underdog concept of, like, you know, they're really f- they're really swimming against the grain of, like, people that are buying natural pipeños are people seeking out natural pipeño, right? Mm-hmm, You're not going mm-hmm. into a wine shop and being like, yeah, I got 20 bucks to spend on something, and uh, I'd like a pipeño. A lot of people are coming in being like, can I get a cab? 
Can yeah. I get a Merlot? Yeah. Can I get a French wine? Like they're going to easy. Yeah. And this is just super fun. You just have to, right now, Chile's in a spot where if you're going to search for something soulful, you have to be like soulfully searching. So. <laughs> nice. Welcome to my life. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What makes these three movements? Why three movements? Why the three movements? What is the tie that binds these three movements together? Well, first, before we get to that, uh, so three movements is unusual. Normally, a symphony would have four movements. Not always, as we will discuss in a future episode of Scores and Pours, but traditionally speaking, a symphony is going to have four movements. So it's unusual that the symphony only has three. The second movement, one of the things that is also unique is that the second movement has a fast movement in the middle of it. It's got a slow movement. It's, you know, the second movement is slow, which is, again, a typical thing in a symphony, but not a constant, but often the second movement would be a slow movement. And then he puts a fast movement right in the middle of it, basically. So it's almost like it is four movements, but the second movement swallowed the third movement. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so I could draw you a little diagram. I visualized just now. I was like, whoa. <laughs> Because what's in the middle of the second movement is a scherzo, which is usually the third movement of a symphony. So it's just, it's just this funny thing that he did. So one of the things that I love about the slow movement is that there are these um, fast, short runs of notes that the violins do uh, kind of in the second part of the main melody that you learn in the opening of this slow movement. And um, to me, what makes a good performance of the Beerwald or a good recording of it is how well those are performed and brought out because in the score, the melody is being played very quietly, and these flourishes are marked to be played loud. And so, you know, it's kind of a little disconcerting of a sound. You're kind of like, whoa, I remember the first time I did an actual, like, solid listen to this symphony, and I was like, wow, those are weird. Mm -hmm. You know, but it's beautiful and passionate, and I, I love it. But you can see how they're marked pianissimo, so very quiet, and this is marked forte, so loud. Here it comes. to a close and we go into this scherzo kind of out of nowhere which is great and is in 6-8 so it's so eight. this is still technically part of the adagio yeah now we're on to this delightfully mm -hmm. happy there's all this fun dynamic contrast in this movement and or in this part of the movement I just keep mm -hmm. it thinking to myself amateur composer yeah and then I think to myself Come on, Sweden. I know. <laughs> I mean, okay, so here are some... Let's talk a little bit about why that might be, again. 
because uh, they're it's complicated, and <clears throat> with with Bearvold, I mentioned earlier that he wasn't really known as the most, you know, convivial soul of souls, right? <laughs> and and he made a lot of enemies in the academic scene of music, and like. He was trying to get appointed to this board or like Academy of Music. And I mean, one man who was like on his deathbed was w- deliberately wheeled to the voting so that he could vote against Bearvald getting in. Like that's, he, he didn't have friends in high places and he blacklisted himself from a lot of opportunities in Sweden, including teaching, okay. which would be a natural course for anyone, you know, like you know, Tchaikovsky taught, yeah. and they all, you know, they, they all did. And and so he, and he also moved a lot. He didn't constantly live in Sweden. He lived in Berlin for a while. He lived in Vienna for a little bit. <laughs> so he, he just didn't, um, he kind of didn't do himself a ton of favors. Um, and he, like, humiliated some people and musically. And yeah, I mean, he just, his brother, he and his one of his brothers didn't get along very well, and it was one of his brothers who took over the court orchestra. And that so was, all these could be reasons why he yeah. isn't so revered yeah. Yeah. in his home country. Yeah. Okay. Who knows? That's but, fair. Yeah. But I mean, just come on. I know. Get over Listen it. Listen to it. Listen to it. I know. And there's literally one biography on Bearvald that's been translated to English. One. Are you serious? Yeah. Come I had on. to special order it from like, you know, some 97-year-old dude through Amazon or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, you did. Like, <laughs> I just, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, uh, and I was so happy when I got it. <laughs> yes. But anyway, he was an interesting sort, for sure. Well, so to to kind of piggyback off, the, off that, because I'd love to hear a little bit of the third uh, movement as yep. well. Um, I think some of the reasons why... Chile has issues, and this is this is definitely not you know because I talked about the the cheap and cheerful, and then the you know expensive over oak yep. stuff. Another reason reasons could be if we look at a map right now, uh, which you know maybe we'll put online, or you know I'll have you look at wine regions of Chile. She's looking it up in Google right now because I did not bring uh, the wine regions of Chile, but if you look at a wine map, there are several of them, a dozen plus. And if you were to ask your average sommelier that let's just say isn't, you know, they haven't traveled to Chile 20 times, they haven't taught a lot of classes, but they, you know, they drink Chilean wine, they need to know about them, and say, give me two paragraphs on each region. Most sommeliers are going to say, F you. <laughs> it, that's not that important. Yeah. You know, and, and yet, you know, obviously the Chilean winemakers slash government, et cetera, have thought that it's important enough to separate all these regions. Where this becomes a minefield is like, you know, we have uh, hundreds to, in some cases, thousands of years with other regions to go say, most of the time hundreds, to go and say, hmm, I want this Burgundy and I want this subregion of Burgundy. I want this Loire Valley. I want this subregion of Loire Valley. Even though Chile has been making wine for hundreds of years, their quote unquote terroir, their ability to have a grape and a place and a, you know, a, a, f- a flavor profile is really, really new. Mm. So not only are we as, as sommeliers, it's sort of like why all these regions, but then if you you know, you distill that down to the guest. People aren't coming in and asking for wines from the Elki region or the Limari region because they don't right. know even what the hell that means, right. right? It's just adding all they want is a cab for eight bucks. So, <laughs> you know, you're going to have a hard time speaking the intricacies of the Elki Valley if there aren't a lot of producers really making mm-hmm. Elki specific wines, right? Sure. And so that's one issue which translates to. You know, if you are a, a sommelier, this is a very, f- pardon me, hundreds of thousands of sommeliers all over the world. I'm, I'm not speaking for myself, but I'm throwing a blanket statement out there that a lot of sommeliers, this is terrifying territory. because okay. you The regions of Chile? The regions of Chile, because not only is there not a lot of, you know, when the more natural it is, the more defects, but the more right. purity we can find, right? So right. You, you, you learn to sift through them. 
whereas it's harder to find terroir in things that are adulterated. So this is a minefield because, let's face it, Bordeaux is a safe place. You can make a lot of money selling Bordeaux, <laughs> knowing a lot about it, being very vested in it. Mm -hmm. And so places like Chile, places like Australia, places like Argentina, mm -hmm. where terroir isn't established, that's a fearful place to be, you know, to have to like yeah. go through that all and learn that all ourselves, travel there ourselves to make up our own minds and not rely on, you know, the government or wines of Chile to make up what that looks like for us. Yeah. And so in the end, I don't know, I'm, I'm personally very grateful because I kind of, I love, I've always kind of looked fear in the face, especially when it deals with like drinking something, <laughs> just <laughs> kidding, sort of, um, but in making my mind up for myself, right? What's defective, what's reflective of terroir. And mm -hmm. there are a handful of producers that we'll put up online. Um, for those of you that live in Minneapolis, most of them aren't available here, but <laughs> if you live on the coasts or, you know, around the world, you can find some of them. Uh, people that are really trying to actually write a book, uh, the first book of terroir in Chile, where grapes not only belong, but where they're found. Like, where have two-year-old, 200-year-old vines flourished? Because if mm -hmm. they have survived, you know, the change in global warming and Pinochet and all this stuff, it's like they were meant to be there, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. granted, Hernán Cortés, maybe that was, you know, obviously that was like a situation that was a, a, a travesty, et cetera, but the vines are there. So, I don't know, the, the great places they are, we're thankful that they are, and that Chile is a, a perfect landscape for amazing viticulture in the right hands. Mas. Man, I'd like to say it scores and pours, but we're both empty. <laughs> <laughs> And the word pipeño, by the way, comes from the word for these old Raulí barrels called pipas. So pipas oh. are the birthing place of pipeño. Cheers. And as it sits wow. open, yeah. yes, our minds and our palates get used to the volatility, right? It's sort of like if you're searching for something yeah. other than melody in music, if you listen to it 20 times, you're like, oh, I found something new, I found something new. Yep. Um, so it's not to say the wine is changing, because we all know that happens, but it's also our minds getting used to the volatility and the high-pitched fruit. The depth of fruit for me, the more I taste it, is more noticeable. Like the darkness, the the pips of the, you know, the, the kind of the bitterness of the pips. You can definitely tell this is like great quality but rudimentary winemaking, which I'm in a very happy place. <laughs> Third movement. Third movement. Third movement. <laughs> Um, this one is fast. <laughs> We're just going to listen to it. Presto, right? Presto. Yep. Finale presto. It means very fast, very fast. And do I have it right in my notes as I was listening that it ends major, but it yep. starts minor? Yes, and it's unusual that this uh, movement starts in a minor key. That's not a, a common thing to do when your key, when your symphony is in a major key. Um you're not going to start the last movement in a minor key, but um, Berval did. And it's been done before. There are others, but uh, not, not super common. I mean, I really, truly don't have too much to say about this movement, to be honest. Um, but what's the tie that binds them? Like, what's the... Well, there's a lot of rhythms that are are brought back and okay. things like... Um, <clears throat> even just in the score here, look. Do you recognize that rhythm? Uh, besides the fact that I need readers, I don't. Hold on a second, I'm going to come closer. <laughs> You're not going to hear it right now, but if you just look at that dotted quarter eighth, dotted quarter eighth, dotted quarter eighth, dotted quarter eighth, and then we go here, dotted quarter eighth, oh. dotted quarter eighth, dotted quarter eighth. It's just there's some rhythmic rhythmic recurrences. It's the rhythm, ba da 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 da. Yeah, 
So with this piece going, whoa, timpani, timpani, timpani. <laughs> with this piece going, yeah, timpani rhymes with Rauli. Yes, it does. BTW. What uh, can I ask? Yes. Okay. What do you What do you like about this wine? And what if there's anything? What do you not like about it? Well, what I love about it is the acidity because I dig that. I find that fun. Okay. Um, I do taste the tiniest bit of mouse at the end. Do you? Mm-hmm. Just, just the littlest? The littlest. The mm-hmm. littlest, yeah. But it wasn't perceptible at the first nope. sip. No. Nope. Um, which for me, so we right now we have about, we've consumed about a less than a quarter of a liter. We've had maybe an eighth of a liter, a little more than that. So I would quickly get this in the fridge. Yeah. And then we have a we have a business meeting later. So I would, you know, this would be really fun to pull out for that, but to, you know, have it when we know that we're going to cash it yep. with eight glasses of wine. You know, yep. like pour for the eight people, have it be, have that be it. Wait, do there have to be eight people if there's only eight glasses of wine? Can't there be three people <laughs> in eight glasses Sure, but the, 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 when you notice something starts to get that way, mm-hmm. Uh, there's a chance that it could go away, but there's a chance that there it wouldn't, right? So if you want to enjoy the wine before it yeah. starts, that mousiness starts to run rampant. Mousy yeah. is a, um, it is a defect in wine that um, is more, I would say, more commonplace in natural wine than conventional wine for sure, and it is either due to a bacteria that's running rampant, a lack of hygiene, it could be a number of reasons, no no sulfur dioxide usage, but it could also be the bacteria that rears its head, in my opinion, due to temperature, barometric pressure, moving wine around. All of you that want to come back at me at that, please do, but this, this could go away in like uh, three days, okay. but it could also get a lot worse. Okay. And because of the lack of studies with mouse, it's sort of like if you notice it mm-hmm. and you've bought wine, you might want to just drink it and quick, <laughs> yep. you know, with, with <laughs> make sure you're pouring it uh, amongst. So that's when I just wanted to give a little background to the mouse conversation. Um, so, but, but please but go no, on. Yeah. So back what I really do love again, the acidity, love it. Love how the first sip I took just did this thing on the end of my tongue. Like I had just eaten um, maybe Pop Rocks even almost. Oh, like little, like, almost a little spritzy, but not spritzy. great. And then the whole like acid and then uh, a little tannin, not much, just a fuzz, you know. Mm -hmm. And then it made my throat hot, which is something that some wine does to me. But I thought it was delicious. You know, for for someone who, again, I'm really hard on red wine because it's so unusual that I'm like, oh, I love it. But I do like that very much. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It's super fun. If it had just a probably 10% more tannin, I might be like, meh. And if this had, for me, if this had a little more mouse, I'd be like, meh. My threshold for that's pretty low. Like, I don't don't mind if it has a little tiny touch, but I – when it starts to deter from me being able to enjoy slash assess the wine, I don't yeah. I don't want it. Um, and mouse can kind of taste like A, corn chips. B, if you sucked on your hair as, you know, your ponytail as like a, you know, seven-year-old man or woman, <laughs> or I should say girl or boy, kind of yeah. tastes like, it kind of tastes like wet hair. That's like the easiest way for me to describe it. Um, I weigh more I'm on the Fritos bandwagon than, sure, than Fritos, the wet hair one. Sure, Fritos, almonds, but, yeah. like there's like like rancid almonds, there's a whole, there's yeah. a lot of descriptors. But anyway, um, I think the wine's really fun. I think it's fresh. I think it's representative of where Chile can go. Um, and there are many people that have, you know, followed in Luis Anton Lutz's footsteps. There is actually a producer that has been making wine longer than uh, Luis Anton Lutz um, has been. And I, you know, we can't find them here in Minneapolis, unfortunately, but they're called Viña Herrera Alvaredo. And they've been making wines uh, very, like between Valparaiso and Santiago, they've been making, you know, Pais and vinifera varietals. So, you know, when we think of cab and stuff like that, known varietals, they've been making natural wines for a while, which is refreshing. Good. We'll get there, Chile. We'll get there. You'll, yeah. you'll, we'll be, we'll be rooting for you. I'll be rooting for Definitely. you. Definitely. My underdog. I might even live there. 
<laughs> yes. I was going to throw in uh, dry muscat because every time mm. you talk about muscat and want to recommend it to someone, they're like, I don't like white sweet, sweet wines. I'm like, well, you told me you wanted a dry wine. I'm recommending a muscat. Do you think I'm just <laughs> pulling you in the opposite? Like you wanted an appetizer and I'm just bringing you to dessert? I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, because muscat, there's so many great muscats that are so just beyond phenomenal with like summer salads and just a lot of things, cheeses and stuff. But uh, I didn't want to convolute things because uh, Chile is a great and lovely minefield in and of itself. So to Scores and Pours, to Berwald and to Berwald Chile. and Chile. To Underdogs. And Jill Mott and Scores and Pours. Emily Reese. Thank you for listening to episode 11 of Scores and Pores with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pores and Instagram at scores and pores. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pores. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam, Sam Keenan. Keenan. And I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of Jude Media Inc. <laughs> <laughs>